The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So as you settle back in, the AC should be coming on, so those of you who were boiling in the last meditation should get more comfortable fairly soon. Um, I want you to settle in. I'm going to tell you a story, okay? So um, can everyone hear me okay in the back? I guess you probably can't hear me ask that. Is it still soft? Okay. I'll try to adjust the mic. Hang on. Is that better? No? Can you turn it up a little bit? Okay. All right. So I think there might be some spots that you got it. Okay. Is anyone being blown away by sound? Okay. Okay. So um, we won't, won't be able to please everyone, sorry. <laughs> um, there are assisted devices for anyone who's hard of hearing um, just outside the door. So settle in, and I'm going to tell you a story that's thousands of years old. So imagine yourself for a minute, comfy and safe, maybe like you're sitting around a campfire on a starry summer night, or you're in a friend's living room, surrounded by people you care about, trust. And someone tells a ghost story. It's not a scary ghost story. It's um, just a really old ghost story. This is the story of how the metta practice came to be. Okay? And... I'm um, riffing off of an adaptation that Gil Fronstel wrote in his forthcoming manuscript, Boundless. Um, but it's based on an ancient commentary from around 500 A.D., so old, old, old. And um, it goes something like this. At one time, the Buddha was living in Savati in North India, And soon it was going to be time for the monsoons and time for the monastics to choose a suitable place to stay for the entire three months of the rains retreat. In preparation for the retreat, many, many monastics came to the Buddha and they were going to receive instruction in a meditation practice and then go off and practice on their own in groups. So he didn't offer classes like we have now. You got your instruction and you went off and you did it. (laughs) In preparation then, he would divide the monastics into groups and he would teach them, depending on their temperament, what meditation practice was suitable for them. So he taught those who had a lot of desire and lust to focus on unpleasant subjects, for example. For those who were hateful or fearful by disposition, he taught loving-kindness meditation. He taught those with a lot of delusion or confusion or spaciness meditations on death that would focus them. 
For those who are speculative, he taught mindfulness of breathing. Those who are speculative probably includes most of us in this room because we live in a very speculative culture. (laughs) And so on and so forth. So one party of monks, after receiving their instruction, headed north to look for a suitable place to spend the whole retreat. In an outlying district of India, they came to a cool, dense green forest grove, emerald light trees, really beautiful. In it, they found a stretch of ground covered by white sand. It looked like a net of pearls or a silver sheet, sparkling. And just by it was a clean spring with cool, clear water. Within sight of this spot, there was a great mountain forming part of the Himalayan mountain range. It was just massive and awe-inspiring, and it glittered, sparkled like crystal in the sun. The monastics were very pleased. It looked like something out of a fairy tale. And so they spent the night there. It was comfortable. And in the morning, they found a town not far away where all 300 of them were welcomed and fed. Monks and nuns don't visit the outlying districts of India, ancient India, very often. So the townspeople were overjoyed to see the monastics. And not only did they happily offer them food, but they actually invited them to spend the rains retreat in this nearby grove. When the monastics agreed, everyone in the town set to, and they quickly built all these little huts at the bases of the trees, one for each of the monks to protect them from the elements. The next day, the monks re-entered the grove, and they, you know, they were inspired. They wholeheartedly started that retreat. This is about as good as it gets. However, the forest was already occupied, and it was occupied by devas, or tree spirits, who had been living there for quite some time, who were less than thrilled to find 300 monks suddenly camping out, literally on their front stoop. You know, the tree is their home, and the monks on the roots of the tree. So... Um, They came down from their tree homes, and from a little distance, they wandered to and fro with their children, kind of wondering, you know, when are these guys going to leave? What's up? It's kind of like the analogy given in this story is when a king and an entourage commandeer a town, the townspeople will go back at a distance and talk to each other. It's like, you know, how long are they going to be here? When can we go back? When do things come back to normal? This was what was happening with the tree spirits. They were kind of powwowing. And sooner or later, they realized that the monks weren't going anywhere, that they were there for the duration of the rain's retreat. And this seemed a little bit like a long time to be wandering back and forth with their kids out in the elements. So they decided that um, this wasn't going to really work. And they must try to frighten the monks away. So in the middle of the night, the tree spirits started creating these terrifying apparitions, you know, illusions, sounds, that would stand in front of each monk and make these just horrible spectacles. The monks shook with fear and became pale. They could no longer keep their minds concentrated. 
kind of understandable, isn't it? The devas kept up their fear tactics, and the monks also lost their mindfulness. They were being harassed, and they couldn't even pay attention to the breath or the body or whatever it was they were supposed to be paying attention to. Each one felt quite oppressed, but he didn't tell anyone around him, any of the other monks around him, what was happening. And so this went on for some days until all of them were looking kind of pale and sickly and shaky. And the senior monk asked them, you know, friends, we entered this beautiful grove. Your skin was bright. Your faculties were clear. You were healthy. What happened? And so they got together and they talked and they figured out that they were being haunted. They decided to leave and go ask the Buddha for a new location. So they took walked for many, many days all the way back. You're not supposed to walk during rain retreats. As a monastic, you're not supposed to travel. So when the Buddha saw them, he wondered what was going on. And um, they told him what had happened. The Buddha then surveyed all of India, all of the known world to these people. And he couldn't find any other place as suitable for meditation as this particular grove. All the other places have been occupied by other groups of wanderers, right? So um, he said, I'm sorry, monks, you have to go back to this grove. But if you want to be free from fear of these spirits, then learn the following as a protection. It'll be both a protection and a meditation practice for you. And then he expounded the discourse on loving-kindness, which is the basis of the practice we're going to be learning for the next few weeks. So the monks returned to their grove and began reciting the discourse. It's actually a lovely poem that can be sung as a chant. And then they practiced the loving-kindness meditation. And the devas heard the discourse, and they sensed the energy from the monks, and they thought to themselves, you know, These monks wish us well, actually. They seek our welfare. And the devas became filled with happiness. The spirits began sweeping the grove to keep it clean, supporting the monks, preparing warm water for their baths, massaging their feet and shoulders and protecting them. And the devas felt comfortable enough to move back into their trees with their children. And they all got along harmoniously for the remainder of the retreat. In practicing in such a generous sort of harmonious field, the monks became very well established in their meditation, and all of them attained the highest enlightenment in that very retreat. Isn't that nice? Nice story. So this was written down about 500 AD, or CE, depending on when you went to school. And um, I like it, not just because it's a charming little story, but because it also speaks to some of the purposes of metta meditation. In Buddhism, um, metta, loving kindness, is often intended to be a protection or an antidote to fear. It's also an antidote to ill will or other kinds of aversion. Throughout the suttas, it's how it's used even today. Um, Also, in many of the stories in Buddhism, it 
improves relationships, both one-on-one relationships and the larger community harmony. Divisions in community can actually be healed in some of these stories by metta. Interestingly enough, this actually resonates with some of the purposes for which scientists have used metta in contemporary culture. So um, they've tested and shown that metta can also calm the harassment of self-criticism in our minds. It can protect us from being haunted by anxiety and help us form a friendlier relationship with our own ghosts, memories, or unhelpful cultural conditioning that we may have been exposed to. And scientific studies have also shown that people engaged in metta meditation often enjoy being with others more than they did before they started. That's kind of cool. So that whole community harmony idea that's been around since 500 AD is now starting to be borne out in empirical studies. So I've been talking for a while, and um, just want to check in and hear from you. If you have any questions or comments about the meditation or what we've talked about so far. Can you do the mic? Nobody? Ah, okay. Hi, I just wanted to share that when you did the first meditation and guided us to think of the uh, hidden villa with the working farm, and that brought an immediate smile to my face because I have been there. Mm -hmm. Um, And it is, it's just an enchanting place, and the little animals are so dear. And I was picturing the little trough of the pigs, which were just absolutely adorable. They were just in their full glory in the mud with the curly little tails. And the animals were so happy there because they were free. It was just they could roam and do whatever they wanted. But I liked how you then tried to um, want to guide us to, as you said, having the children maybe handle uh, one of the little ducks very carefully and lovingly and with maybe two fingers to then turn that to ourselves and I tried to imagine you know caring for myself with that intent and that's really something I'm trying to work towards learning how to do that more so I really enjoyed that so thank you thank you I'm wondering if metta is different from compassion. It is um, a different flavor within the same set of four practices. So uh, metta is one of what's called the immeasurables, or the brahma-viharas. There's metta, karuna, compassion, mudita, joy, and equanimity. Um, Classically, metta is what we cultivate is a general sense of friendliness towards ourselves or others, irrespective of what condition they're in. Um, But towards people who are 
generally in the same situation we are in, or more or less, or beings. And it has a very broad application. It can be applied to almost anyone. Compassion is the same wish applied to someone or some being that is suffering, is actually experiencing difficulty. So it's a little bit more specific. In practice, many of us, and indeed in this course, we will use elements of compassion at times, especially self-compassion, because most people suffer a little bit at least some of the time. So it's important to include that. Does that answer your question? Okay, thanks. Thanks. I have a question. Sure. Um, I noticed in the um, when you were asking us and guiding us through looking at our internal posture, as I think you called it, mm-hmm. there were um, we were looking at safety, happiness, um, healthfulness, and and peace. I think. Yes. And um, I was wondering if there's an, a purpose or intention to that order. Uh, was there a priority of safety for some reason over peace or something like that? Um, or not necessarily, I don't know. <laughs> so those four um, general wishes are the classic ones that are written down in ancient scriptures, but they don't necessarily be in that order. Um, some teachers put happiness first, for example. And they're based on phrases, actually, that we'll be learning next week. Um, But I wanted to go ahead and introduce the idea now. If it works for you to change around the order or even change the language, it's completely fine to do that. It's more of the spirit of it and whatever the language is that works for you, I encourage you to be creative with it. Anybody else? This will be the last one for now. Thank you very much. I'm really enjoying it. But I wanted to ask, I'm going to be away next week. Is this recorded or something so I don't miss out on something? Yes. We'll be recording all the classes. uh, And you can go to audiodharma.org or to insightmeditationcenter.org to find those. I'll also be uploading the handouts and supporting materials to the same spot. So if for some reason you forget a handout or you lose it, you can go there and click on it and download a PDF. So. Great. Thank you. Great. Thank you. Okay. So um, I was talking before about ways that loving kindness, metta, can improve relationships, Right? Um, the community harmony idea, ghosts and monks living together, that kind of thing. In Buddhism, much of what we look at is about the way we relate, our relationship to experience. And um, I'd like to spend a few minutes just talking about ways you might consider relating to metta practice in this course. First of all, you don't have to be Buddhist to do this practice. We're in a Buddhist center, so I'm going to be using a lot of that language. But as you may have noticed already, um, there's no world religion that has a lock on loving kindness, compassion, and peace. Um, we, We hope all of them try to promote that and 
No religion is necessary to experience those things. So um, you don't have to change your beliefs to do this practice if you're coming in with others than, than these. As I mentioned before, also mindfulness meditation is um, the most common practice in this lineage of Buddhism. And it tends to be really receptive, being aware of everything that comes up, allowing that, seeing that. Metta practice is picking out one or two or three sort of threads within everything that's happening and really intentionally cultivating and focusing on what the beautiful parts of our minds and hearts have to say and watering those intentions. So um, we will be combining metta with mindfulness practice. That's um, the way I learned it, and it's also a very powerful combination. But this is different. You have my full encouragement to use your imaginations, not to make up an emotion, not to paper over difficulty, but to help focus our minds and hearts in a way that deepens our connection to what is already beautiful and what is already there. So this isn't an aspiration practice. It isn't a, I'm going to make myself feel something practice. But it is an encouragement to be a little bit playful and experimental. And there's not really a wrong way to do it. You can invent your own words. You can invent your own images. You can change the categories of people around. I will not give you a grade. (laughs) Um, Mostly, this practice is focusing on cultivating intentions. The intention of goodwill, of friendliness, of kindness, of having a loving heart. Sometimes warm feelings arise, happiness arises during this practice, but that's a side effect, a very welcome side effect, that can grow over time. The important part is the intention. Intentions are much more durable and lasting than any fleeting emotion, as you may have already noticed in your lives. And what this means is if you're not experiencing warmth or happiness or giggliness or whatever you're hoping for, you're not doing it wrong. You're still developing those neural pathways. You're still cultivating those intentions. And they change the heart and mind dramatically over time, sometimes a little tiny bit at a time, just as if you're in you know, a boat and you turn this much and you end up on a different island 50 miles later than you would have if you stayed there. So... Don't worry so much about whether or not it seems to be working right away. This is a practice that works even when it's not working. As our intentions shift, we begin to shift the background attitude or the background chatter in our minds. And I bet most of you know what I'm talking about. At least I've got background chatter in my mind. (laughs) Um, 
And that's a little bit like cultivating the ability to change the mood lighting in a room or changing the channel on a TV, except that it takes a lot longer. Um, The time scale might be more like shaping a bonsai tree or growing a garden. But generally, the idea is just to experiment in a gentle, playful kind of way and just notice the little things and how paying attention to intention might shift your own experience. And that does a lot, even when you're not doing the formal practice. This week, we're focused mostly on noticing and cultivating that internal posture, that attitude of kindness towards ourselves. There's actually kind of a lot of pieces to this meditation, So I thought it might be nice to start with that. I have a quote about that from one of my teachers, actually. This is a book by Ajahn Suchito. He just taught a retreat at Spirit Rock recently. He's a monk in the Thai forest tradition. And he says, In the practice of kindness, we look into the mind as it is happening, one moment at a time, with the intention to gentle it out of the hold of aversion, depression, or anxiety. To support this, the teaching is that although the sense of self and other in us happens by default, we can have some say over its emotional and energetic flavoring. Regardless of our emotions, our current intention doesn't need to be tense, inadequate, or critical. It can be uplifted, uncramped. This intention, this sense of self-other, can catalyze together and give occasion for the wish to offer support, kindness, gentleness. This kind of intention is essential for a happy life because if we don't use our relationships to experience and to others in a kind and generous way, then defensiveness, anxiety, fault-finding, and grudges are going to haunt our lives and impair the lives of others as well. So that's the general idea is to pay attention to attitude in your mind and your heart. So you've been sitting for a little while. We have about half an hour to go. I invite you to shift, move, wiggle, stretch, if you like. Just for a moment or two. I'm going to start talking again in two or three minutes. 